Well, open up your Bibles, if you will, to First Peter. First Peter. We did, and we have been looking at First Peter chapter ten through eleven, and taking a little bit of extra time to talk about the gifts. I always leave a little bit frustrated as what we didn't say and what could have been said and so forth. That's just kind of a lot of speaking all the time. And it's part of your patience and putting up with the one who speaks all the time. But in either case, we have spent a, a little bit of time covering certainly not everything and not every even important thing, but getting a view, overview, I hope, of the glory of God's gifting His church for the glory of Christ so that we might serve one another, build up the body, and so know all the joys and the blessings of salvation that we have in Him. We did take a little bit of time last week and talk about our gifts inside in the light of God's love to us, and in the light of our expression of that love reflected in our service to one another. This morning, before we begin this next section, which we will do in two weeks, next week our brother Tim is going to be bringing to us the word. Sorry, and we will be here actually to hear it, but we'll be gone during the week. And so Tim has so graciously uh, accepted the offer to come and preach for us. But we'll, in two weeks, uh, pick it up at verse 12 in this next section. But as we end here in verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 4, I want to take a little bit of time and emphasize and talk about and consider the idea of the glory of God and what it means to glorify God. You know, there are many phrases that we use in the Christian life and that we throw around as Christians. Sometimes we do that, not always, and not all of us, with little or no thought into the depth of what they actually mean, which are profound truths, such as, trust God, just trust God, or God is sovereign, or as we'll consider this morning, to say that we delight in the glorify God or, or in the glory of God or all that we do, we want to glorify God. What does that actually mean? What does that entail? What are we saying when we make statements like that? One, referring to these statements, has said this. Glory, with the verb glorify and the adjective glorious, is one of the most common terms in the Christian vocabulary, but one of the hardest to define precisely. What does it mean to glorify God? What does it mean to say that God is glorious? That can be a challenge, and really to define that takes in the whole scope of divine revelation from Genesis to Revelation, the book of Revelation, and innumerable details and nuances and ways that that is filled out, both in the ways that God has glorified himself and in the ways that we are to glorify God. And while we won't cover everything, we're going to make an attempt, or I am this morning, to at least clarify it a little bit more. And to accomplish this, we're going to consider the idea of God's glory and our glorifying Him in four topics. That is, the centrality of God's glory and glorifying God in 1 Peter. But I want to start as a launching pad, uh, as a launching pad the book that we've been in uh, for the last uh, several months anyway. And so we'll look at the glory of God as it's laid out in Peter and hopefully see that it is a central theme. It is central to Peter's letters. Secondly, then, I'll give a brief definition or explanation of what glory means. What does the term actually mean? And then we'll look and hopefully spend the bulk of the time here, and I'll try to go quickly through the first two points, of how God glorifies himself in this world and how we are to glorify God as his people. Let's look first at the centrality, then, of the glory of God in 1 Peter. And walk with me 
uh, through 1 Peter as we consider the ways that Peter presents this idea of God's glory. And we'll just walk through them in order. The first appearance of the term is in verse 7. He says, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As we noted when walking through this passage, that praise and glory and honor is most likely a reference to what the redeemed give to God at his return. Praise, honor, and glory. It could also refer to what God bestows on his people at his return as they share in his glory. And both of those are true and both are supported in First Peter. But most likely there it is that glory then that we will give to Christ at his return. It says again in verse 8, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. A reference to the glory of the gospel evident in the worship of the redeemed who worship and serve Christ even in adversity. In one eleven, he says this, that The prophets of old were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Speaking here of all of the glory of Christ that will attend his his resurrection glory, his ascension and his return. Everything related to the glory of Christ in and after the accomplishment of his work of redemption. It's the glories that will mark his return and the establishment of his kingdom. Verse 21, he says that through him we are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. This marks the glory of God as it's evidence in his raising Christ from the dead as Savior and Messiah. In verse 24, he goes in a different direction. He says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And here he references a passing kind of glory that is to man. There is a glory of men, but it is a fading glory. It is a temporary glory. It is a passing glory compared to the enduring word of God. In chapter 2... He says this, that we are to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And again, as we noted when we went through that passage, this glorify God is most likely those who came to saving faith through the testimony of the behavior of believers as they trusted God in adversity and gave credibility to the message that the Spirit of God used to convict and to bring to faith those who were once their persecutors on the day of visitation, on the day of Christ's return, will actually glorify God. In chapter 4, verse 11 is the next use. We looked at that. He says, whoever speaks... Speaking as the utterance of God serves by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory forever and ever. This is glory to God that comes through Christ as the fruit of our obedient exercise of our gifts and love to the building up of the body. He's going to say it again in verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, 
you may rejoice with exaltation. If, you're, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. This points to those who suffer to the glory of Christ at his return. Glory we will participate in. Glory that is consistent with the spirit of glory in Christ's people. Spirit of glory here most likely hearkening back to Isaiah 11.2 and the ministry of the Spirit in the Messiah, making a connection there. The Spirit that would rest on Messiah is the Spirit that rests on us. He's the Spirit who prepares us for future glory, who manifests the glory of Christ in His church, who gives us a foretaste and glimpse of that glory and a glory that will be manifested in the future. He is the Spirit here of glory. He says it again in, or something in 5.1. He uses... The idea of glory again. He says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Here it is, this future glory that is an encouragement to elders particularly to be faithful in their work, to persevere in their ministry in light of the full glories of Christ that are ours. He says in verse 4, and the chief, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Here, though elders are the most immediately in view, each believer will receive an inheritance in Christ described as crowns that mark a shared victory in Christ. But here it refers to that future reward that marks faithful service to Christ, particularly of elders, but applicable to all obedient believers. It's put in the context of reward. Reward, And this reward is in the context of glory. In chapter, verse 10 of chapter 5. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This refers and identifies the future glory as an expression of that eternal glory that is God's and that will mark the eternal age and that he will bring about. In 2 Peter, verse 1, he says this, that his divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. It's the manifestation of God's glory and calling to himself the elect. In verse 17, he says, For when we received honor and glory, or when he, speaking of Christ, received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Referring here to that shining glory of Christ that was witnessed by those who were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration and the majestic glory of God the Father that overshadowed that mountain and instructed them to listen to the Son and not in any way diminish his glory by sharing worship to another. In chapter 2, verse 10, he says this, speaking of false teachers, Especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic, some say majesties, the term is glories. Angelic glories. And here it's a rebuke to false teachers who do not even fear the glory of God reflected in his holy angels whom they revile. Lastly, in chapter 3, verse 18, summing up his letters, he says this, 
by exhortation, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. An expression of praise to Christ in whom the glory of God eternally shines. And that is, beloved, as we'll see in other places, an incredible statement to the divine nature of Jesus Christ. That he, along with the Father, will forever, on that day of eternity, be glorified and is rightly to receive the glory of all who are there, men and angels. So glory then is central to the hope of believers, to the nature of God, and to his work in Jesus Christ. As these believers are suffering, as false teachers are coming in and causing havoc among the church, as they're being reviled for righteousness, as they're being maligned, as they're being betrayed by their own government, where does Peter point them? He points them to the glory of God. He points us to the glory of God, the glory of the kingdom, the glory of Christ's return, the glory of the eternal glory that's reflected in the person of Christ. So it's central to the idea of Peter who is writing to give us hope. But what exactly does it mean to speak of God's glory or to give him glory? Well, here's the second point. And this is just briefly a definition or an explanation of glory. Some of you may be aware the Old Testament term that most commonly, not exclusively, but most commonly translated as glory is the term kabod. It has the primary meaning of being weighty or heavy. It's used literally in that sense in some places, but most often it's used figuratively and very often, especially one form of the word, it means honor. Honor. In reference to God, it has the idea of that outward physical manifestation of his light. So the glory of God in the Old Testament is very often associated with some kind of manifestation, some kind of visible manifestation. His cloud and his glory that was on Mount Sinai. The cloud that followed Israel as he led them out of Egypt through the wilderness to Sinai and as they wandered for 40 years. There was the glory of God seen in the cloud, which was some kind of light or Shekinah kind of glory that manifested the presence of God. And that was a key idea as well, that the glory of God was associated directly with his divine presence. Where his presence was, there was evidence of his glory in a variety of ways. But it also spoke of his character His character, his divine nature, his covenant faithfulness is a display of his glory. His name is a reflection of his glory. When Moses was on the mountain, he asked of God, show me your glory. And what did God do? He showed him his character, his faithfulness, his loving kindness, his mercy, his forgiveness, as well as his justice. That was the glory of God. As well, In the New Testament, the term, again, most commonly translated as glory is doxa. And it has this basic idea, an opinion, an estimate, and hence the honor resulting from a good opinion. That's the way we could define it. Used in a variety of ways, but most often in relation to God's work in creation, redemption, and particularly in Christ, which reflects the Old Testament usage as well. 
But when you put all that together, the essence of God's glory or the idea of God's glory is this. It is the visible manifestation of his being and his perfections. That's a way you could summarize all of that. A visible manifestation of his being and his perfections. It is an outward, observable, visible way that God reveals his majestic glory. That's the idea of his glory. And the display of this glory and our response of participating in glorifying him and his name is at the very center of all existence and reality. For all of humanity, really, but especially for the church. He says in Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Everything is about his glory. Everything that God does is to reflect his glory, to proclaim his glory, to declare his glory before all of the world and particularly before his church. God acts for his own glory, ultimately, in everything that he does. And we then, as his people, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. In other words, we are consistent with God's will and God's purposes in this world when we act for his glory. If we act in any way contrary or against or ignoring his glory, then we are acting inconsistent with God's own purposes in us. Everything we do is to be to the glory of God. And therefore, it's also true that blindness to the glory of God in this world, ignorance of his glory, is at the very heart of man's depravity and blindness. And indeed, even the work of Satan is to hide the glory of God, to cloud it, to confuse it, to deny it in some way, to cover over the glory of God so that men may not see it. And so Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And how has he done that? So that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. It is not that it is not understandable. It's not that it's not evident. It is that the heart of unbelief looks at the gospel and sees no glory in it. No need to respond. No need to worship. At the very heart of belief, of faith, of regeneration, is coming to see glory in that which previously had no glory to our hearts. So he says in verse 6, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give what? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the face of Christ. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to come and to experience the reality of the Spirit's regenerating work and saving work? It is to see the gospel. And when you look at the gospel and you hear the gospel, whether you hear it once or a thousand times, is to see and to feel and to respond to the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is to see glory in it. If the gospel is boring to somebody, if it's old hat, then... That's a problem. Because for the believer, there is the glory of God in the gospel. 
As a matter of fact, at the very heart of God's judgment and wrath on the world, he says in Romans 1, it is because they did not glorify him as God or give him thanks. But instead they exchanged, we as men, the glory of God for that which has no glory, and that is the things of creation. So understanding God's glory and rightly giving him glory is at the very heart of what it means to be human, to be image bearers, and it has eternal consequences. As again, I said, it's salvation, this blindness is removed, and God's glory is seen in Christ. The sinner is awakened to life and moved to faith in Christ, and the glory of God in Christ becomes his treasure. As Paul would later say, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Thirdly, how then does God glorify himself? What is the way that God glorifies himself that we as his people are to look on him and his works and the manifestations of his glory and to praise him and to worship him? How does God glorify himself? This is not an exhaustive list and I might even have to skip some as we go through here. But let me give you some ways that God glorifies himself. What are the things that God does in which we as his people are to see his glory? And not only us as his people, but really the world, but particularly his people. What are the things that God does in which we are to observe his glory and see his glory and delight in his glory? First, most obviously, is the work of creation. The work of creation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Everywhere we look, we see the glory of God. One ancient Puritan writer, I don't know if it's ancient, but older, put it this way. Every plant, every atom, as well as every star at the first meeting whispers this in our ears. I have a creator. I am a witness to deity. Calvin said that statement I've repeated many times. uh, We love is that there's nowhere in all of creation that our eyes can gaze that we do not see some reflection of the glory of God. Everywhere God's glory is speaking to us, is telling us, is reminding us of his character and of his nature. His faithfulness, his divine attributes, his power, his wisdom, his beauty, his goodness, his greatness, his majesty, his intelligence, his justice, and so on. Everywhere we look, our eyes see the glory of God. And that's why, that's where Paul begins in saying the condemnation of men is that even though they see the glory of God in everything that he has made, they will not give him glory for it. So in the work of creation. Secondly, In the acts of redemption. In the acts of redemption. Everything that God does redemptively among men is for his own glory. Is for his own glory. We could forget that sometimes in our current Christian culture, which is not so new. It's always been something that plagues the church and the people of God. But that is to think of salvation primarily in terms of ourselves. So when we think of the glory of salvation, we start with ourselves and then we go up to God rather than starting with God and looking down to ourselves in wonder and praise. But listen to the way that God defines this. He says in Ezekiel 36 verse 23, speaking to Israel and what he would do in the future for their salvation, he says this. 
He says, Thus says the Lord, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. This is his glory which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you. He says later, I am doing this for your, not for, I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. This is simply to say that God's, faithfulness to his covenant, his acts of redemption, his acts of deliverance, his salvation of his people, which in the context of Ezekiel 33 is the salvation that he would bring at the coming of the Messiah. It's included with a heart that's changed from stone and made a heart of flesh. It's included with the indwelling spirit and that would indwell his people and cause them to walk in his laws. It is what Jesus was referring to when he spoke to Nicodemus and he should have understood what was happening in the ministry of the Messiah point here is that God acts redemptively for his own glory. God's glory is in his own character behind his redemption. And remember again what Moses was given to see when he asked to see God's glory. It was his covenant faithfulness. In answering prayer, especially that which promotes his salvation, God delights in showing his glory. Jesus said this, And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. Even our prayers are to be directed toward the glory of God, that in the answer of those prayers, we should be able to say that our greatest delight that would be God, is that God would be glorified in them. When we do that, we are praying according to the will of God. So God manifests his glory in creation and redemption. But he manifests his glory as well in acts of judgment. In acts of judgment. We don't often maybe think of God's glory and his judgment because most often it is presented in terms of his salvation. But God is equally glorified when he brings judgment upon Unbelief. Let me give you one passage. In Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 2, he says this. Israel, he's referring to, who had known such blessings of God and had come to find a self-exaltation in God's provision for them, had come to trust in their own honor and their own glory. And so God, through the prophet, is addressing that. And he says this in verse 11. He says, the proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. In other words, the Lord alone will be glorified. What is that day? For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. He describes that. And then he says again in verse 17, the pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day when he comes in judgment and when the pride of man is humbled. Commenting on that verse, one said this. It's helpful. The splendor of his majesty, in verse 10, is an attempt to describe the visible appearance of the glorious presence of God in its exalted fullness. This revelation of God's glory in many ways exceeds human comprehension. It gives the example of when Isaiah saw the glory of God 
that filled the temple and the vision that he had and the train of his robe filled the temple and the seraphim were flying around, holy, holy, holy. He says, when such an event happens, people are immediately aware of God's holiness and power and they immediately sense their sinfulness and unworthiness in his presence. When God manifests his holiness to someone, there is an immediate awareness of our own smallness and weakness and guilt. Speaking of that day, he says, that will be a day of divine judgment on the proud. That will be the day that God reveals his power and glory as he intervenes in Judah's history. God makes no apology for that day, nor is there any attempt by the prophet to make God's actions more humane or politically correct. God will totally devastate the proud. They will finally meet the real holy God that they attempted to define out of existence by reconstructing his ways after the desires of their own imagination. End quote. We sometimes act as if we're embarrassed or ashamed of the glory of God in judgment. We want to hide it. There was a whole book written by one false teacher, that, which is nothing new, that denies the reality of hell. Why? Because it's simply unconscionable. God doesn't have those same sensitivities. He's glorified in his judgment. He's glorified in his judgment. And while our hearts grieve in one sense... For those who will be judged, in another sense, we recognize the glory of God in it. Most often, he's glorified then. He glorifies himself, however, primarily in his salvation, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. Every part of his person and work radiates the glory of God. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of his glory. And the fact, again, as I mentioned earlier, that Jesus shares in the glory of God as an equal recipient of worship is an overwhelming, powerfully, powerful testimony of his deity, of his deity, of a glory that he says in John 17 that he is eternally shared with the Father. How is he glorified? He's glorified in his coming, in the fact that he merely came in flesh, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten from the Father. The mere fact that he was here, the mere fact that the Son of God took on flesh was the glory of God. In his life, he glorified God. We saw some of that in what we read. In John 2.11, after he turned the water into wine at the wedding of Cana, John says this, The beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus himself says in John 17, he says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So the entirety of Jesus' life as an act of obedience offered to the Father as a mediator and substitute for his people is a display of his own glory. Most surprisingly, however, Jesus points us as well to his death as a reflection of the glory of God. Listen to what he says in John chapter 12. Jesus is glorified in his death. And again, this is offensive to some. Liberal theologians and large swaths of popular Christianity and large Christianity, large swaths of Christianity, are ashamed at the atonement of Christ. They call it divine child abuse. They say it's unfair, it's unworthy of a God of love to lay such destruction on an innocent human being. But again, that's not the attitude that Christ has. 
and the scripture takes. It says, no, in fact, his death, his sin-bearing death, is a demonstration climactically of the glory of God. In John 12, 23, he says this, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, speaking there of his death. Jesus himself to his disciples in John 13 says this, So after receiving the morsel, that is the one that identified Judas as the betrayer, He, meaning Judas, went out immediately and it was night. And then as soon as he went out, Jesus' response is this. As soon as Judas went out to betray him, as soon as Judas went out, the devil having already entered him and taken full possession of his mind and his affection and his faculties that Judas had conceded to him through his own sin and his own disobedience, Jesus, knowing that all of that had taken place, says this. Now... Now, now when? Now that Judas has gone out to betray me. Now that my betrayal by the nation handing over to the Romans authority and my death by the accusations of the leaders of the nation, now that that is upon us, he says this. Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. One noted, in the climax of humiliation followed immediately by glorious exaltation, the Son of Man is glorified, and the radiance of His grace and the majesty of His truth is made to stand out. The Father, in giving up the Son to die on the cross, and in granting Him the promised reward, exhibits the divine attributes in all of their majestic and indescribable beauty they are displayed for all who have eyes to see. All of that in the death of Christ, his atoning death, his resurrection. He goes on to say, in reference to John 13, he had seen the coming of the storm, but instead of avoiding it, he walked right into it, like a hen which being in the act of spreading its wings protectingly over its chicks, thereby permitting the rain to come down upon its own back and torrents while its brood is perfectly safe, elicits expressions of admiration from the lips of those who have been watching. So also, and far more so, the Lord, in the act of dismissing Judas, reflects glory on himself. For in doing this, he allows the storm, not of rain, but of wrath, to descend upon himself while he shelters his own. This was his glory. Speaking of the mutual glory of the Father and Son, one says, whenever we think of Christ's suffering, we never know what to admire most, whether it be the voluntary self-surrender of the Son to such a death for such a people, or the willingness of the Father to give up a, such a Son to such a death for such a people. In every way that you look at the death of Christ and the atoning work of God and the accomplishment of redemption, you see reflections of the glory of God in triune glory. The Father is glorified in giving up the Son. The Son is glorified in giving Himself up. And according to Hebrews, the Spirit is glorified because the Son did it through the power of the Holy Spirit in His humanity. Through the eternal Spirit, the writer of Hebrews says. So He's glorified in His death. He's glorified in His resurrection. Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. First Peter tells us that it is that glory of the Father through the raising of the Son from the death that enables us to put our faith and our hope in God. We put our faith and the hope in God 
who would provide such a savior. We put our faith and hope in God who would display such power as to overcome death by providing a sacrifice and raising the son from the dead. His glory is manifested and therefore in that glory of the resurrection, our faith and our hope are in God who accomplished it and his glory in his return when he returns in the glory of his father with the holy angels. I'll just mention, he's glorified then in the person of Christ. He's glorified in calling the elect to faith. He's glorified in conforming us to the image of Christ. God is for his own glory conforming us to be more like his son. As we are more like his son, we more reflect his own glory and he is more greatly glorified. That's the purpose of our sanctification, is his own glory. But we all, with unveiled face, Paul says, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. It's his glory that he's after. It's his glory. One said, our possession is twofold. We have God's presence here and likeness hereafter. Here we behold the face of the Lord in righteousness, for we are justified in Christ Jesus. Oh, the joy of beholding the face of a reconciled God. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ yields us heaven below, and it will be to us the heaven of heaven above. What is the glory and the wonder that we, as his people, desire in heaven? It is to see and behold the glory of God no longer with limitations it is to behold his glory that is the hope hope of God's people Spurgeon says this as well but seeing does not end it and we are to be changed into that which we gaze upon we shall sleep a while and then awake to f- up to find ourselves as mirrors which reflect the beauties of the Lord faith sees God with a transforming look The heart receives the image of Jesus into its own depths till the character of Jesus is imprinted upon the soul. This is satisfaction. To see God and to be like him, what more can I desire? And that's perfected in the resurrection in Philippians 3 when we're conformed to the image of his glory, to the body of his glory. So the ultimate glory God brings himself is when we, the elect, the redeemed, are fully conformed to the glory of the Son, in whom and through whom His glory is most beautifully manifest, then eternally reflected, unobscured in His people. Why is God sanctifying us? Why is God revealing His glory in us? Why is He transforming us to the glory of His Son? Because He is glorified in us. So Jesus said what? He sanctified her, speaking of the church, that He might present her to Himself in all of her glory. Which is a reflection of how husbands are to, uh, the attitude husbands are to have towards their wives. But why does He do it? Because Jesus has purchased the bride that he has made pure and holy and that he will present to himself in the fullness of her glory. That's why Paul could say to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, he's jealous for them and he's concerned because he wants to work in their life with such sanctifying power because he knows the church is going to be presented to Christ and he wants her to be presented in all of her glory. He wants her to be presented as a pure and a chaste bride. 
And of course, there is in the work of recreation, in which there's no need of the sun or of a lamp because the glory of God will illumine it and the nations will bring their glory into it. Revelation 21. Let me jump to this quickly. How then do we glorify God? How do we glorify God? How do we participate in God's glory? Well, one, most obviously, and this isn't even the first point, just an obvious observation. We glorify God when in all of these things that God does to glorify His name, we find reasons to worship. We find reasons to trust Him. We find delight in our heart and in our soul. We find strength. We find courage. We delight in God, not merely from what He gives to us, but we delight in God simply because the majestic glory of His character put on display in all that He does. That's one basic way. But how do we glorify God? Let me give some specific ways. One, and these are in no particular order. One is we glorify God by the confession of sin. We glorify God by the confession of sin. Have you ever thought of confessing your sin as a means of glorifying God? I'm sure some of you have. Maybe others haven't. Listen to Joshua. And I'll just cut to the chase. The idea, they'd come into the land under the leadership of Joshua. They were defeated in battle, which sent Joshua into sort of a pity party. Why were they defeated and so on. God reminds him that you were defeated, Joshua. Don't be surprised at this. Stop whining, basically, because there's sin in the camp. And so the mission of Joshua then, under the direction of God, is to identify who is the one who sinned. So they go through a process, and someone named Achan was identified as the one who had committed sin. What he did is he took things they weren't supposed to take in a previous battle. Things that God had commanded them not to take. And verse 19 says this, though, in Joshua 7. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him. And how are you to give praise to him? How is he to give glory to him? How is he to give honor to God? By this, tell me now what you have done and do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. And then he details what he did, where he had hidden what he took. And the result of it in this case was that he was punished for his sin. They stoned him with stones. And those stones were piled up as a reminder of the consequence of sin. The point here is that the glory of God is associated with the confession of sin. Why? Because when we confess sin, we acknowledge God's holiness. We acknowledge the rightness of his ways. We accept his justice as he may discipline for our sin. Never according to our full just deserves, deserts. We acknowledge his wisdom in his discipline. One of the truest marks of true repentance is this. One of the truest marks of genuine repentance is this. You ready? That we accept God's discipline without complaint. That we accept God's discipline without complaint. So David said this in his confession of sin in Psalm 41, his repentance in verse 4. He says, So that you are blameless when you judge. And you trace that out in the life of David and he received many consequences and he never complained against the Lord. He received them. So how do we know if we've repented when God brings discipline or some humbling to us because of our sin and we receive it gladly and rightly? 
Corresponding to that, repentance brings him glory. Repentance brings him glory. In Revelation eleven thirteen, it says this, that in that hour there was a great earthquake. This is a judgment that God brought to the, the city of Jerusalem after the death of the two witnesses that were raised up to preach the gospel. It says, and in that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified. And what did they do? They gave glory to God. They gave glory to God. Now, some see this not as repentance. They see this as merely a recognition that Christ is Lord and not the Antichrist. However, it most likely here refers to repentance and very possibly the repentance of Israel that is anticipated, for example, in one place in Romans eleven twenty six, And this is supported by the contrast. In Revelation 16, 9, when the fourth bowl of judgment came upon the kingdom of Antichrist, John says this, The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues. And here it is. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. Indication being to give him glory is, involves repentance. If there is not repentance, then it is a failure to give God glory. It is a failure to acknowledge God's justice in his judgment for sin. To react against God's adversity that he brings into our life, especially when it's directly a consequence of sin, is in fact a failure to glorify God. It is to accuse God. There's two responses to God's judgment. One is to accuse him and to hate him and to be hardened and to not give him glory, which is what unbelief does and unfortunately sometimes is the attitude of believers. The other feels the justice, the justness of the justice of God and sees personal guilt against him and turns to him and gives him glory. So you glorify God when you confess your sin. You glorify God when you repent of sin. We glorify God when we walk in obedience. Matthew 5.16, Jesus said, Let your good works be seen before all that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. But this obedience is particularly glorifying to God when it comes with sacrifice. Let me give you an example of that. In John 21, you're familiar with this. In John 21, Jesus is speaking to Peter. And he says to him, after going through a conversation affirming his love, uh, bringing out, affirming Peter's love for Christ, he says, Truly, truly, Jesus does, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. And when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And then he says in verse 19, the commentary of John, Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Follow me. One said that this Peter appears to have preached through Pontus, Galatius, Bithynia, Cappadocia, and Asia to the Jews who were scattered abroad, he finally came to Rome and was crucified with his head downward, having requested of himself to suffer in this way. One ancient writer said, it said, is that he did this because he said he was not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. Whether that's a true account or not, that is at least in one old writer. The point here is this. That Peter's obedience unto death was not what his flesh desired. In fact, it was what his flesh did not desire. 
He no more desired to suffer the death of the cross than any sane person would desire to suffer. It wasn't that it was easy. It wasn't that his desire was so filled that there was no pain and no resistance in his own self to not want to die that way. It is this. It is that with a spirit-enabled heart, he was stirred to greater love and a greater desire to please Christ and compelled to glorify him even in his death. It's not that there was no cost to his obedience. It is the fact that there was such great cost to his obedience that his death bore a particular glory to God because it showed the treasure and the worthiness of Christ to give his life for. The obedience we offer that comes from the greatest opposition of our flesh, the strongest temptations of the world, exhibit the greatest love for Christ and faith in God and therefore bring him the most glory. Bring him the most glory. When we wrestle with our flesh, when we wrestle with the false reasoning of our desires that are working against righteousness, when we feel the pool pool of what would cause us to escape adversity if we compromise, in those moments when we feel the most Temptation to not obey and yet we choose obedience is the moments that we most glorify God. When obedience is easy, God is glorified, yes, because we're obeying. But it doesn't match that obedience that Peter calls us to in Scripture that says, while being reviled, you give a blessing in return. When someone maligns you, you don't respond in kind. When a wife is able to love and submit to a husband who antagonizes her and belittles her because of his rejection of the gospel and the humiliation he feels by her not following after his own gods. That's when God is glorified the most. When somebody treats us wrong and sins against us and we forgive, God is glorified then. When our obedience is going to cost us a job, a relationship, a particular honor, or some other kind of reward, that's when God is most honored. When we walk in obedience, and that obedience costs us something. And even when it's in times of suffering and trial, Job said, though he slay me, I will hope or wait in him. One notes, this is a high expression of faith, and what we should all labor to come up to, to trust in God, though he slay us. That is, we must be well pleased with God as a friend, even when he comes forth against us as an enemy. We must believe that all shall work for good to us even when all seems to be against us. We must proceed and persevere in the way of our duty though it costs us all that is dear to us in the world, even life itself. We must depend upon the performance of the promise when all the ways leading up to it are shut up. We must rejoice in God when we have nothing else to rejoice in and cleave to Him. Yea, though we cannot for the present find comfort in Him. In, dying, in our dying hour, we must derive from him living comforts. And, to this, and this is to trust him, though he slay us. That glorifies God. When an unbeliever sees, how can you suffer and still have joy and worship God and worship this Christ? That brings glory to him. That opens up opportunities for the gospel. When we trust him, even in... Circumstances that would lead us away from it and confuse us. 
This is the third. We glorify him by faith and trust. In Romans 4.20, speaking of Abraham, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, believing that he is the one who's able to bring something out of nothing and even to raise the dead. And the context there is his offering of Isaac. How bizarre of a command would that be? The son of promise through whom the covenant will be maintained and move forward. God says, kill him on a mountain by your own hand, not even by another's. And yet Abraham obeyed. And in his obedience, he glorified God in the greatest possible way. And he became the father of faith. We glorify God when we acknowledge him as the source of all good in us. We glorify God by knowing and seeking to know him. When we delight in him. The shorter catechism, you'll remember this question, says what? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is our chief end. And when we seek that chief end to know him and to glorify him and to delight in him, then we glorify then we bring honor and glory to him. Let me move to the last two. When we treasure him above all earthly treasures, when we treasure him above all earthly treasures. So the psalmist in Psalm 73, after he was jealous for a while and acted like an unthinking animal, he says, because of the ease of the wicked and the the way that they seem to have no problems and the righteous are suffering. He says he came in the temple of God. He recognized their end. He knew that there was destruction and then his reason returned to him essentially and he says at the end of that, who am I in heaven but thee and beside you I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail but God is the strength of my heart. He glorified God. He desired him far more than whatever ease was displayed in this proud, flippant life of the unbelievers And he rather would suffer for the righteous because God was his greatest and his highest joy. We glorify God when we show him to be a greater treasure than anything this world can offer. Let me give you this. Paul, while he's rotting away, essentially, in prison, supposedly removed from the blessing of God is what some of these even believers, he says, were accusing him of, seeking to cause him distress in his imprisonment. While he was not sure whether this would be for his death or for his release, though he thought it would be for his release, he felt confident of that, but he didn't know. And in the end, for Paul, it didn't matter why. Because he says this, I know that this will turn out in Philippians 1 for my deliverance, for my salvation through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body whether by life or death from a need to live is Christ and to die is gain. How did he glorify God? He glorified God by here saying, look, it doesn't matter whether I live or die. I don't really care what this world can offer me in terms of its comfort. I don't really care what this world can offer me in terms of its pleasures. My life is totally wrapped up in Christ. My life is totally bound with him. My purposes are totally in line with his purposes. My life is for him to use. I've been bought with a price. 
And all that I care about is that in whatever situation I'm in, no matter what others may accuse me of, no matter what it may cost me, my only concern is that Christ would be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. That's how we glorify him. And the ultimate end of this, of course, will be in the new heavens and the new earth already mentioned, but where his glory is perfectly reflected in us as in the sun. And First John tells us that we're conformed to his glory and we're pure even as he is pure. So what does it mean to say the glory of God? The glory of God is everything that God does, which is everything that we see and observe in this world for all of creation, redemption, all of his acts, his judgment, his promises, Ultimately, in the person of Christ, everything that God does in creation and redemption and the rule over all that he has made, God is reflecting and displaying in multifaceted ways his glory, the glory of his majesty, the glory of his character, the glory of his promises. How do we glorify God? When we are seeking that same end and we acknowledge the glory and the worthiness of God to receive from us our trust, our obedience, To receive from us a life that is offered to him in holiness, that confesses sin and walks in righteousness, that hopes in his promises, and that lives in the light of them. This is the glory of God, and this is the great Reformation cry. Do you remember it? Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. So do you live to the glory of God? None of us does that perfectly. Are you seeking to live to the glory of God? That's the question. Are you battling sin in your heart because your sin hides the glory of God from you? Do you wrestle at all with sin? Do you confess your sin? Is there any who are here who can hear the, the gospel and hear of the glory of God and his works and find no delight in them and can think only of lunch or what's going on at work? Or is there something in you that says, yes, that is what I want. That is what I live for. Not perfectly. I fail miserably at times, sometimes consistently, but it is what I want. It is what I'm willing to strive for. It is what I'm willing to fight for by the power of the Spirit in me. If that's true of you, then then it's safe to say that you're one who has had your heart open to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. If it's not true of you, then you're one maybe whom the God of this world is still blinded so that you may not see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But that is available to all who turn to him in repentance and in faith and in trust. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to live for your glory. Help us to understand and see and delight this glory. We pray with Moses so often, show us your glory. Our hearts are so dull. Our minds are so clouded. Our affections are so weak for those things which are truly glorious. We're so easily distracted and thrown off course. We're so blinded to your majesty and your wonders displayed all around us. Your word at times can become to us boring or mechanical in our lives or that of duty. We pray that you would forgive us and that you would restore us and that you would stir up into us a love and affections that are delighted in the glory of God as you've revealed yourself in Christ. And that we would live consistent with that. Help us to battle sin. Help us to walk in the way of obedience. Help us to skirt no responsibility. 
Help us to give our lives as a sacrifice and an offering to you who have purchased them by your own blood. Help us to do this. We're incapable of all of it on our own. Of ourselves, we are, and we would walk away at any moment. But it is by your grace in us, and that grace we rely on, that you will conform Christ in us, that you are working to bring us to our heavenly home and our inheritance that will not pass away. Help us, Lord, bring us safely there and bring any who are not yet on that road to a knowledge of your glory in Christ even today. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.